We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Aubameyang lifts Arsenal to 14th FA Cup, then smashes it on the ground, ensuring no one can ever win it again. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can pop me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner, and we are the champions of FA. That's right. Once again, for the 14th time, the FA champions, Arsenal FC. Yes, we have won the FA Cup, the Arsenal Invitational, the Arsene Wenger Invitational, whatever you want to call it. The fact of the matter it is now the Mikel Arteta Invitational, and we are the champions of it. And as a result, as we record this today on Monday, uh, Spurs are playing a qualifier for the Europa League. <laughs> what a day. What a day. What a weekend. What a season. Couldn't be happier to see the back of it and couldn't have had a better way to usher it out. Who would have guessed that the team most triumphant on the final day of the domestic uh, league calendar, domestic, not league calendar, domestic calendar, full stop, that the most triumphant team would be Arsenal Football Club. The team that starts every season at the top of the table uh, ends the season in celebration. And it was absolutely fantastic. And I want to just sort of thank everyone because the the chat uh, on Twitter, the the chat in uh, yeah, in the Discord on Patreon, just everyone, the the whole group of people celebrating together. You know, unfortunately, we weren't able to physically be together, uh, many of us anyway, in our pubs, at the ground, um, you know, in each other's houses, things like that. I wasn't even able to break into someone's house to just watch in their living room. So we were we were mostly isolated, and and being able to sort of reach through the digital space to hug and celebrate 
it made it a very, very special occasion. So thank you for everybody for sharing that. And there's so much we're going to do. We're going to celebrate. We're going to laugh at our rivals. We are certainly going to analyze the game, really get stuck into this. Just a little bit of housekeeping later this week, special guest coming on to talk squad building. We will get our, sink our teeth into the squad building debate. That'll be for everybody. So uh, you'll, you'll definitely have that. We'll have some of our patron um, uh, transfer pods coming up. We've got Muhammad coming on with, with scouting reports of some under-the-radar uh, uh, targets, even though it appears that we don't want to go under the radar. We just want to sign uh, uh, big, expensive players like William and Coutinho. Fine. You know what? Not going to get into it right now. Today's the day for celebration, but so that's on the horizon. And here to discuss it with me is Paul. You can find him on Twitter. Pause my pants. Hello, pause. Woo-hoo. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. I am so amped to discuss this. I, look, I know that... Uh, uh, Tim would like to be here, but at some point in some undisclosed location, there will be a, a, a human child that he and his wife will celebrate coming into the world, uh, and he will be announcing that. But but as a result, I think he is within his right to uh, celebrate alone and and not come on to the podcast while trying to usher a human child into the world. And uh, and and I've got Scott lined up for the for the squad building pod and stuff coming up later this week, so he'll get his word in as well. So let's kick it off. I think where I want to start is at the end, actually. And Clive, before we dive into the, the, what happened on the day and the game, this this decision to sign an untested coach, to uh, move on from the bad man and bring in Arteta, it's a risk. It's a risky decision. I think everyone was behind it, but he has absolutely no um, experience coaching, you know, as, as, a, as the main guy in the big chair. It's a big risk. A squad that looks very broken. He has to come in. He has to try to fix it on the fly in the middle of the busiest period of the season. Then the pandemic hits. Then he's got to come back and and do his first job coaching in this very weird project restart environment. And then he draws City and Chelsea slash United in the semifinal and final of the Cup. A daunting situation. And for him to have navigated this, to have ostracized Ganduzi and Ozil and had it look like the right move completely, to have relied on kids, I mean, bringing Maitland-Niles in to start the City game and again in the cup final, like some of the decisions, I don't think you could possibly have a coach have been more validated. The selection of this coach and the future we have under this coach than the way this played out. So how happy are you for Mikel Arteta and how how much of a validation is this for him and, and how much does it excite you for his future? Yeah, so let's bring ourselves back to getting Arteta on board so, so obviously many of us have sort of liked him in the past we weren't sure about him I mean let's be honest we weren't sure how could you be sure he's only about 23 when we first approached him for a job so like how could you be sure youngest manager in the league no experience assistant to a very good manager but you can't be sure you just have a feeling you look around within the game and you see what people are saying about him it sort of makes you sort of inquisitive you know how good is he Everybody talks so so strongly and so positively about him. Then you come to that first interview, and then everything changes from that day. On coming from a coach who may have been a decent coach but couldn't communicate in a way which brought everybody on board, you get a guy that immediately can tell his story. And that first interview, the impact of that first interview has never left me. Right, so. Straight away, you think this guy's got a, he's got a plan, he's got an approach. He cares about how he impacts rooms, impacts people. That's the important part of being a coach: how you impact people, how you make them feel, how you can extract performance out of them based on what you say and your ability to understand detail, both emotional, physical, and the details of coaching. So I'm thinking this is brilliant. 
him talk about leadership, structures, plans, what he needs to do. Everything he says just seems so obvious and clear. That's the best way to communicate. When someone says something, it sounds like, oh, that's obvious. That's just class communication. And then he goes into the football pitch. And you got this, uh, I, was, I was just mentioned, talking to the Grove offline, and he sort of mentioned, he called the group the uncoachables. That's a brilliant line. A group of players that, you know, I've said myself, some of them were uncoachable. So we think, we can't, how much are you going to get out of this group? How's he going to do it? How's he going to create an identity? All the things that we talk about, all that soft stuff we talk about, how's he going to get that guy with this group? Mm-hmm. And he's managed to do it. He managed to put a system in place which hid a few people, promoted a few people. When that broke down due to injury, he moved to another system which hid a few more people, yeah. maximised what they could do. And you're just looking at it and you're thinking, wow, this is outstanding. But a feeling needs to be validated and the best way to validate it is by being something or at least showing a positive direction. And pre-cut final, I said we couldn't lose until the day he arrived. And I'm quite you know, what to lose. Then we win. And then we win from coming from behind. I mean, Elliot, I just don't know if a coach can get more validation on his 28th game hmm. than what he's achieved. I think it's absolutely outstanding. Yeah. <clears throat> and I mean, I think it's important to add that uh, it is now uh, two days since Arsenal have won a trophy uh, it's been 38, uh, 39 for Liverpool, 155 for Man City, 432 for Chelsea, 1167 for Manchester United. Um, uh, where's Spurs on this? Oh, there they are, 4,547 days. Uh, okay, uh, Paul, you want to add to that? Yeah, I just want to say uh, one thing. Like, I've always thought Arteta has the X factor. I think I made that clear along the way. Um, the thing that really popped for me at the end of of all the celebrations etc was that i don't know if you saw there's like a five second clip of arteta hugging somebody uh, in his coaching team and saying he says believe in me it's the believe. it's the, the doctor what gary o'driscoll is that his name the, gary o'driscoll yeah yeah because yeah. wasn't yeah. he gonna leave he was gonna leave right yeah yeah mm-hmm. but but like think about what those words were he didn't say believe in what we're doing you know he could have said all sorts of things, but that's at his core. Believe in me. Mm. And like, that's a hell of a thing to say. Uh, vaguely narcissistic, which you need a little <laughs> bit of. But, but the guys on it, of all the things you can say, that's his first reaction. That's, that's what he's thinking himself, right? Uh, the guy's on a mission. He believes in himself. He thinks he, he, look, you can't fool yourself at the end of the day. That wasn't that wasn't uh, Trump talking to like the planet. That was Arteta's inner circle. That's his first thought. That his that's his most at his core his most fundamental thought. That something he he knows himself, and uh, you know when you're an imposter, and you know when you're the real deal. And the guy said, "Believe in me, not to the world, to his inner circle." Yeah. <clears throat> and it, it it was just a day of celebration and joy and camaraderie and for a team that I think has sometimes, you know, I've said it, I, I don't like these guys, you know, who, who would you even keep in this squad? And now you, you have a guy like Tierney and how important and likable he is. And obviously Aubameyang, you know, I, I tweeted out the other day, the list of people I love more than Aubameyang is extremely short. Um, 
you know, Pepe, the way he played in this game. Well, we'll start to analyze the game now because I think I want to get into the game analysis. But I think the headline of the day is Arteta, is the validation of this guy. And the echoes of 2017, it's pretty wild, right? Like beating City in the semifinal and then maybe, maybe some dodgy refereeing decisions in the final helping us beat Chelsea is just a wonderful way to do it because it even gives us more of an opportunity to laugh at them as they turn apoplectic with rage, just just pink with rage. So I, I enjoy that as well. Um, Olivier Giroud, I don't know if I've ever come out on my feelings about the player. Not my favorite. And, uh, you know, granted, he was sort of involved in that early goal for Pulisic, but, but a quiet day. And I, I don't know, have you, have you guys seen the video of him uh, being shot by a sniper from the stands? Oh. You, you, you need <laughs> yeah, to find it. Ars Blog tweeted it out. It, it is absolutely epic. Louise sort of bodies him from behind and he holds his buttocks. To be fair, his, his quite buxom and, and beautiful buttocks. And then... Uh, falls to the ground as though he's been shot by a sniper. It is it is pretty hilarious. So let's start to analyze the game here, though. And and I don't think the lineup is particularly um, interesting because he went with the semifinal lineup just holding for Mustafi, which I expected. Uh, and, and I think most people expected. We did have some debate on here about whether Saka should play. Again, he trusts Maitland-Niles, and I, I think that is a big part of the success we had. But Clive, I... I you predicted us to win this game. I predicted us to win this game. And I realize a lot of that is built on emotion more than intellect. One thing I said in my analysis of the game was that we couldn't afford to fall behind. I felt that as long as we could play a counterattacking style and hurt them in the wings, uh, you know, counterattacking them, that that, that that would be effective. But we did fall behind. So I want to just get your take on the early patterns of play and why you think they had the success they had early in the game. We'll get to how we turned it around. But what... What about the early part of the game was concerning for you? And obviously, like them scoring first, I, I did kind of fear the worst at that point. Yeah, so we, we suspected that, you know, Drew would play a central part in how Chelsea play. So I think they had one game plan. And that's why I think they got caught out. They thought they'd be better than us. They thought they'd blow us off our feet by just pressing us high, pressing our people that are a bit lumpy on their feet, like Shaka, potentially Tobias and Holding, by using them as triggers. Feeding the ball through center central areas into Giroud. And what you have, you have Mount and uh, Pulisic sprinting off to sides, different angles for Giroud's one touch layoffs, and away you go. Right? So, bang, in behind us. And I think at that point, it becomes a recovery speed game. So, what I thought we did early on is that we overpressed. And I said at the weekend, why do we overpress? We overpressed, in my opinion, because we weren't pressing from the front enough. So, the midfielders could see two. You know, Kovacic and, and Jorginho, they could see bodies that were free. They press out to go and get them. Pulisic and Mount pop off the sides, create a line, straight through, vertical pass, bang, running race. Running race backwards and scary stuff, right? So that's not Arsenal's strength. I felt we lacked a bit of energy up top. Root cause, you know, up top. Should, were we detailed to press up top? So that was a worry. They score, thinking that's it. That's it. I, I, we're now in as the villa rushes to my mind they're going to drop in and we're going to be in a situation where we've got a breakdown deep block and we're not very good at that and they are incredibly physical in their box so problem they keep playing no respect for us they keep playing and we eventually find an out ball and the out ball was down left hand side over the top I, said, I posted a post on the weekend saying we're playing big sam football right over the top can we get the second ball? Can we refill in behind? Can we pick up the bits if they win it? Or can we go straight in on goal? And it kept happening. Mental Niles did it early on, did it two, three times. 
and eventually uh, Bam Yang does it and we get in. And he, um, I, I, I was absolutely buzzing about this, buzzing about the fact that we, we took on board what the game gave us. We, and, and I think in times gone by, we are so pure in our football ways that we just play, 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 play. We play our way. And when the game is offering some direct route, we don't take it because that's not what Arsenal do. We're too proud. We're too pure. We don't do that. But we took this. And because Chelsea was so front-footed, they want to go and feel you. They want to go and smash you. They weren't prepared to run backwards consistently. And eventually, the hamstrings started twanging, right? So <laughs> and we're getting on goals. So, but it's a, it's a byproduct of not having to do this very often. So we almost played on the piston. So you have a situation where Bamiyan comes short, Maitland-Niles pistons in behind. Lacazette comes short, Maitland-Niles or Bamiyan pistons in behind. Or they go short, take it, turn around, switch it out to right-hand side. So we had variations of attack while really hurting them when they didn't want to be hurt. And I love that because I think we all agree, many times we turn away from the obvious and just take it. Take it, it's there. Take it. They're giving it to you. We're quick. We're aggressive. Take the take those moments. Don't turn away from them. Don't be pretty. Stop looking after your stats. Take what's on offer. I thought we did that really, really well in this game. And and we turned them so around Clive. and made them think. Made them think about what was happening to them. And we shook them to such a point where actually by half time we had them spinning on their heads and we should be two one up. Go on, mate. Paul, it sounds like you wanted to bypass the question part of this show, so go for it. Yeah, um, (laughs) I wanted to take umbrage a little bit at at what Clive said, Mm, because like, he's right, we went with the long ball, but we did it after, like Sam ain't never playing 10 passes around his box, pulling Chelsea towards him before hitting the long ball. And like, if you look at the goal, (laughs) the the Kieran Tierney pass, right? We that is the last. Tierney gets that ball, looks up and bangs it to Aubameyang after we've pulled everybody from Chelsea up the field. Yeah. After Emmy Martinez is pinging it to the edge of his box, over to the side, around, back, across, pulling them up, pulling them up, pulling James up, pulling everybody up till we got them isolated at the back, and then, bang. So. It's yeah, it's kind of, I, I, I use that phrase as an I analogy know, for, the long, well, for the longer ball, right? So yeah. what we were doing, we were we were pulling people. They're, I said they they were thick, Paul. They were absolutely thick. James yeah. Zuma, thick. Aspilicueta, scared, standing on his own, scared. Right. So, oh, Chelsea players, it's all right. No point in looking like an Adonis if you've got no brain, right? So Zuma is incredible. <laughs> Don't athlete. I know it? <laughs> yeah, incredible, incredible athlete. But mate, you can literally, you can literally walk him out the out the stadium. He'll follow you. Do you know what I mean? It's just absolutely stupid. And Reese James was now being challenged. He's now challenged on his own. Where do I stand? Where do I go? Who do I? I need to go and do something. Remember I said at the weekend about young players being better when they've got a job to do. Well, yeah. they want jobs to do. And when we took, when we made, when we made change their jobs, like, what do I do? Do I go with him? Do I stop off here? Do I fill the space? No instruction coming from the bench. Poor coaching. Poor coaching. Bill, this happened multiple times. And Frank Lampard should have seen it. He should have stopped it. You should either stop it at source, or you make sure you drop off when there's no pressure on the ball. This is basic Sunday league football stuff. Get on the half turn. No pressure on the ball. Start dropping. 
It's incredible to mm. watch. And I know we've got great athletes up top, but this is basic stuff. And um, we took it. Right, we took charge of the game and took it and we shook them and I thought it was great. They, it's really funny because, you know, there's not a lot of times that we're going to get our analysis spot on. All right, let me rephrase that. There's not a lot of times I'm going to get my analysis spot on. But what I think is interesting about this game is that the ways we were effective were exactly how we thought we could hurt them. If they play a back three, we'll kill them up the wings. And we did. Um, you know, this, the, this game reminded me a little bit of the Leicester game. You know, the way we dominated the early parts of that game against their back three, and they had a right side of their back three with, that was kind of inexperienced and kind of stupid, and we exploited the hell out of it. And they couldn't deal with Aubameyang's runs. Um, the, the other thing that we talked about, though, is that Pepe would have to have a big game because Alonso loves to attack. He's a nothing defensively. That Zuma is someone you can exploit, but also Rudiger on that side is someone you can exploit. And so we knew that that was going to be important. And, and Paul, I think... You know, Pepe is always going to be followed around by his price tag. That's just how it goes, because when you invest that much in a player, what you need from them is something pretty special. But, like, when you compare his output, I know 7 a.m. kickoff did some tweeting today about uh, Perez's first season, Yunberg's first season, some of these key players that we've had over the years, you know, on the wings, and, and Pepe's first season in terms of output looks better than a lot of them. But it's not a linear progression. He was getting better and better, and I think this game might have been his best yet, even though he doesn't get the goal. Maitland-Niles, a leg offside, preventing him from scoring an absolute world. He assists Aubameyang mm. for for the winner. Um, and he just caused them all kinds of havoc. And I think one of the things that really unlocked Pepe is Arteta finally taking the shackles off, letting him get away from the touchline and drift more into central spaces. So how impressed are you with Pepe in this game and with Arteta for solving the problem of, of getting him away from the touchline and letting him get into the, the places he wants to go and be more hurtful? Yeah, no, I, the Pepe part of this game was massive. Um, it was by far the most integrated into play he's been. If you look at his touch map, um, it's, you know, he has his fair share along the wing, but he's got lots of touches in field, on the left. Him and Aubameyang were comfortable when, when the play took them that way to swap wings. Uh, I was struck how often Pepe was... Uh, Filling in, in as a true midfielder, kind of almost like you might see one of our fullbacks stepping into a midfield. But Pepe would be right in, in midfield, right in the middle of it, so engaged all the time. His defensive work was excellent. Um, I don't think that's a big part of it, by the way. See- I'm glad you called yeah. that out. That was really big, really big. I agree with that. Yeah, it was big. We saw the first kind of pass at this in the City game, where I think, again, he. he it was clear he had bought in, that he understood, you know, we offered you, you may have thought we offered you one job at this club. Actually, we've been offering you a different job. Please take it. You got to play both ways. You got to be back there defending your winger. I know we thought this lineup was a gimme, and it probably was, but uh, Arteta's looking at the biggest game of his career as a manager, uh, potentially for you know, for years by comparison, because this changes his whole story. Winning versus losing in this game changes maybe his total history at Arsenal and therefore his total career. So there were no gimmies in terms of the lineup. If if he looked at his right side between Bellerin and Pepe and was worried, um, he might have been tempted to do a pep and overthink things and compensate in some form. Different player, different this, different that. 
you know, kind of more security from the midfield, do something to prop up that side. Instead, he just leaned into it and uh, he allowed Bellerin the, the opportunity to come forward and to overlap more and pull Pepe into the midfield and to really be integrated with the other guys. Uh, I mean, the, that uh, worldy he scored, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going with that was a goal, um, technical offside apparently, but I mean, another work, nobody curls mm. it like him, absolute worldy. And the, the shot behind the keeper, uh, Caballero watching it come, coming through, you know, rooted to the spot. Um, was, you know, that guy had the best seat in the house for that. Hit the back of the net goal. before he knew it was being fired. It, it made me mad that we didn't yeah. see Pepe take either of the two well-placed free kicks we had on the outside of the area that, that Ceballos and Lacazette took. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, and I think you can't look at the right side without thinking about the left side. And I'll be interested to hear Clive talk about Maitland-Niles. But that was a big call on that side because I thought it should have been Saka he picked. What do I know? You keep getting things wrong, <laughs> but, Paul. It's It's crazy. I do, yeah. Um, but I think, uh, obviously, then you got that build-up on the left-hand side with Maitland-Niles stepping into the midfield so that you can get that triangle, triangle up along the left. And we can talk about that tactically, but that was clearly a big piece of how we played, how we pulled them in. And hence, there was no point in, in, in Pepe staying out on the wing on the far side. It was just too far away. So we weren't trying to stretch them across the front three. Uh, Aubameyang and Pepe were themselves were both would fall into a true midfield spot if if Chelsea were trying to progress the ball up the field and keep us compact in the middle and it took us a while to get our spacings our compactness right when when in the first 15 or so minutes they were tearing through us with Mount and Pulisic playing wall passes off Giroud it was quite interesting in fact how how often those two guys went to the same side and just left James on the other side. So there were, there were things for us to look at in terms of our formation. My fear that Maitland-Niles might be kind of stranded there mm. uh, while Mount or Pulisic or whoever wandered infield um, kind of came to fruition. Uh, I would say on the Giroud thing, where you got it right and I got it wrong. I also kind of got it right. Because, <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> yeah, Giroud Pulisic should have led to a second goal too if it hadn't been for that hamstring. So um, it it kind of was their play. Um, they maybe didn't get it off as much as they liked, which was, seemed to be Frank's frustration. That Frank uh, complaining about too many short passes. They re he really wanted them to lean into the Giroud thing. But the couple of times they got it going... Uh, it was pretty problematic for us, but I think I, I think Maitland Niles and Pepe were maybe the choices he sh he could and should have made. But mm. you know he was he was betting the farm on us winning that game. That's his transfer kitty. That's his momentum. That's his belief. And I thought I thought Pepe was just sensational, absolutely sensational. More for the stuff that wasn't eye catching. The mm. fact that he just got stuck in, involved, and was a constant threat down that wing and made Rudiger look like a chump time and time again. He sure did. And Maitland-Niles did great on the other side, yeah. given that he's got no left foot. And, and, and yeah, I mean, it's his weaker side, but he, he did the job beautifully. And I, I think it's worth pointing out, too, that Pepe played 90 minutes. Now, had they not yeah. gotten down to 10 men, quite hilariously, which we'll get to, maybe he wouldn't have. But I, I don't know if he's played 90 minutes this season. I'm, I'm sure he has at some point. But... 
you know, in the City game, we said, oh, really good Pepe performance. He's still not quite a 90-minute player. We could see he had to come off, but really good. There was none of that this game. He was dangerous the whole way through. He was working the whole way through. I mean, you couldn't have picked a better final day of the season for Nicola Pepe in evaluating his arrival at Arsenal in a game that he really largely starred in, was hugely influential in the winning goal, and throughout the way we performed, plays all 90 minutes, covers all you know every part of the pitch, and just really stepped up to the challenge and helps us win the cup. And I, I couldn't be happier about it. Now, on the other side of the pitch, uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, you know, Clive, I don't think people have, I say people, I'm sure some people have, some people haven't. I don't think I have. I don't think we have given Arteta an, enough credit for, I mean, think about this. This is a player who was basically frozen out at, at portions of this season, who there was this perception that he he didn't want to play certain positions, and that perception was fueled by a few comments and by some coach reactions, although it's unclear exactly what it was. But to be fair, Arteta had made some comments. He needs to do the work. He needs to show that he wants to do it. And then when he did do that work, he was brought back in a little bit. But to then start him against City in the semifinal is a massive call. And to leave your bright superstar Saka on the bench for the final, in fact, not to even bring him onto the pitch at all, in lieu of Ainsley Maitland-Niles again for the final, and to be rewarded with two excellent performances is a credit to both the player and the coach. And you you listen to Maitland-Niles' comments after the game, and you know he sort of bristles a little bit at the question about not one, not being a left wing back. He's like, oh, I'll play any position as long as I get to play and, and get to earn more minutes. You know, so, sort of changing that tune a little because he sees that there's something special here. This was a great day for him. It certainly, I, I think these the, the semifinal and final have shown what a big career he can build at this club if he will fight for whatever minutes are available to him. And okay, in the attacking part of the pitch, being on the left is not ideal for him, but his running, I still think even despite the lack of end product, it really pushed them back. It really hurt them. And I I think at times they look terrified. We know of Pepe on one side, but of Maitland-Niles running at them on the other side. Yeah, so Reese James is a monster athlete. So first few minutes, Maitland-Niles takes him for a run, beats him. That means everyone on that Chelsea team thinking, crikey, he's our fastest defender. He's just been run by a kid, you know, on their team. So not not even the Bamiyang. That's a real that's a real message to them. So I'm I'm a huge fan of Maitland Niles, as you guys are aware. And I know he's had a bit of a rough trot and I could go into my feelings about that, but it's not for this podcast, right? So what I will say, in every bit of feedback you get, there's a hint of truth. Maybe he's realised that some of the feedback he's getting is an underlying message. I need to show more urgency when I'm on the pitch. I need to show that I care more. I need to have an outward perception that people don't read me in a way that make people think I'm too casual. And that's hard to accept sometimes when you really do care. You know, when you've been at the club for half your life and you do care, but people think you don't care. And people are judging you in a position as a defender when you're not a defender. And when you're immature, you can you can have a little sulk about that. Then you realise, hopefully, like what I think he'd realise, he's playing for Arsenal Football Club in the first team and you're close to being in the first team. Not many people do that from being there as a kid. You are a unique human being. Don't blow the opportunity that you have. That's just on the human side, and I think he'd realise that. But on the football side... I'm involved in non-league football club, step four, really good side. We go and watch teams. We scout teams. And we scout their tactics before we play before we play them. 
Can you imagine what's happening at the Premier League level when it comes to scouting and, and games and analysis? Can you imagine the data that each coach has before we go into a game? And the reason, one of the reasons why I'm a huge fan of people like Maitland-Niles and Tierney and Saka is their ability to change tactics in-game. You've often heard me talk about problem solvers, recently used the word hybrid players. The fact that Tierney can play in and out, fantastic. The fact that Maitland-Niles can play inside, outside, low or high, fantastic. When he's in these zones, he's not a passenger. He can run, he can sprint, he can win races. Different recovery or going forward. He can look after the ball with both feet. He can cross with both feet. He can first-time pass with both feet. He can dribble with both feet. This is not stuff you should ignore when you're analysing a player. Yes, some of the crosses are not there, but he's there. He's beating other elite athletes to the ball. There's something to work with. And when you've got a player like that that can do so many things in so many zones, all you've got to do is work in the consistency of output. That's the easy part. That's calming down the brain, calming down the thought process, the heart rate. The technique's there. It's just calming it down under pressure, as our superstar captain showed. He's got technique to finish, but how many people can do that in 20 minutes ago in a cup final, like he's walking down the street? It's incredible. Technique under pressure, right? So, so having players that can do things in more zones, to me, is the future of football because that makes it impossible to read. The future of football tactics for me is having having hybrid players that can do more things in different zones of the pitch, which means you can change your tactics in-game depending on the game state without having to make substitution. You can do it in five, ten-minute blocks and really kill teams. And when they adjust, you can go again. You can go to the next game scenario, and that's where we're going as a as a as a football game. That's where we're heading because analysis is too good, data is too mm. good. They know too many things about you, and I think Maitland Niles is a is a beacon along with Saka as to how tactically we can develop our team going forward. And I think it's I think it's an absolute genius from the coach to recognise those players that can allow him to be very difficult to read. Well, it's interesting. See, this is why I think Maitland-Niles offers him something unique that is very valuable. And I mean, granted, Saka could probably do it a little bit too, but, you know, I was looking at a, at a thread, uh, some tactical stuff about the game on Twitter done by like a, a, a coaching account and showing some still shots of the different formations we took up. And this is why I got confused about our system against City at times, again against Chelsea. There were several periods of play, especially in possession, where Tierney was outside of Maitland-Niles. And he can move into the midfield and make an extra midfielder. You know, he's not purely uh, a, a fullback. And so that that flexibility allowed them to sort of change at times. And Maitland-Niles was able to follow Mount around and move more central when Mount came central and then stay central in the buildup. Go ahead, Clive. Sounds like you're chomping at the bit to get back in there. Yeah, well, you, you, you're highlighting something that maybe we're not really getting. It's something I heard Arteta say. He said, I'm trying to get them to behave as if with one brain. And I, I love this line because what that means is they know where to be when someone else is in another position. So if they're working as one brain, so if Tinny does go outside or goes high, Maitland-Niles drops in behind him. So it means that they're working mm-hmm. on one brain. I, I say sometimes we go on the piston, one go high, one go low. But actually, it's more complex than that. We're going inside and out, high and low. We know what we're doing. Lacazette is working a trigger with... Bamiyang, and Maitland Niles, Tierney's involved in that trigger. zones as well, those vertical stripes up the pitch, right? You don't have Tierney 
Maitland Niles and Obama Yang in the same lane. Right. As soon as Tierney pops out into that wide lane, Maitland Niles moves knows into the half space. The trigger so, yeah. to move to, so they got the triangles of the it's wing. Exactly, exactly right. Paul. Yep. They got the passing angles there. Exactly right, mate. You're dead on. I think it's even more. When it's always the two three. Style. You notice that there's always the two three. So if it's if it's yeah. uh, holding Louise and and Tierney making the three, then the two winds up being you know whatever it is. Maybe it's uh, Maitland Niles and Shaka, and then you've got the three ahead of them, which might be Bellerin and Ceballos and and Aubameyang, whatever it is. But there's they, it's always staggered. I, you know, I think the thing that really bothered yeah. me with Emery is it, it, the players clustered together a lot. They were often occupying the same vertical zones, you know, or the same horizontal zones. They were just very much on plane, clustered together. And the spacing, you know, we always talked about distances and spacing. And I don't care what still shot you take of this game. The spacing is really good. The players seem to really have a feel for it. Sorry, I, I, I cut across both of you at once there. But, Paul, I believe you were... About to say something far more interesting. No, no, I'm giving it back to Clive. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I think, I think it's even more complex than the city stuff. And I tell you why. Because it involves more zones going up the pitch. Let's be honest. City have it from the halfway line onwards, so they're looking for patterns to get in to a, to be a five-four-one deep block, right? So they've already got control of the football because they have, all playing defenders. They play in areas they want to play, and now their patterns are really what I call last third patterns. So that's when it comes into how you can manipulate deep blocks with diagonal runs, etc. What we're trying to do, because we're starting from a lower base, we're creating shapes at, for the length of the pitch. So our pattern play is far harder to implement from a coaching perspective because you're talking right from the goalkeeper's hands, right the way through to execution. That is far more difficult, far more complex to do because we're not in control of the game much of the time because we're not that team yet when we start talking squad building we, we should definitely talk about what we need to do to be that possession team that controls the ball higher at the pitch and that should dictate our signings and what those attributes need to be added to the team so i think what he's doing with the the uncoachable pieces that he has is nigh on genius mate and we're all watching him in wonderment and um yeah i've, I've rarely felt more positive about a game you know, in many, many years. It's, it's so exciting. Well, yeah, I mean, not to mention what was on offer and what we wound up winning, which <laughs> we'll certainly get to the celebration there and, <clears throat> and what that all means. But, Paul, <clears throat> there, there's a lot of players that we have to talk about here, and uh, certainly Tierney is, is among them. But, again, I don't know how we get this far into the pod and we haven't talked about the guy who scored all four goals in the FA Cup semifinal and final. Um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is a special, special player. And... We play City, we win 2-0, he scores both goals. We play Chelsea, we win 2-1, he scores both. The pressure on him for the penalty, he puts it side netting, it's the best penalty I've ever seen him strike. At the time, I was like, I think Pepe should be taking this. No, it's it's Aubameyang, and you will not see a crisper, cleaner strike than that. And then the goal he scores is is basically a mirror image of, of Messi uh, ending Boateng's life in the Champions League. Although, you know, a bigger prize on offer here, obviously. So, it's just sensational to see, and... He was dangerous all game. I thought he could have done better with the header early, but they they couldn't live with his running. He is he's a unique player. He uses his brain to win that penalty too, to get into the box and win it. I think that this now takes this player, a golden boot winner for Arsenal, one of the best strikers in the league since he's arrived, maybe not the best, but potentially the best, and takes him out of the group of players who, because of not winning anything during his time at the club and the club being kind of in a down 
you know, in a down moment, him maybe not being remembered by history and puts him into the category of someone we can remember as an Arsenal player and embrace as an Arsenal player because he won the cup, because he was the guy who won us the cup, really, with four goals in these two games. So, I mean, again, I don't know what's left to say about Aubameyang, but do you think this elevates his stature in, in terms of legacy? Now, you know, I mean, I don't know if we'll resign him or not, and, and that's a debate to be had in the squad building pod. It's not a debate for today. But in terms of legacy, I think this changes it. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, uh, some people maybe uh, uh, poked a little bit of, uh, at Ramsey that part of his legend is his success in FA Cup finals. But, like, where, where else would you want the guy to be scoring his goals and to have his great moments than in the big games against our, our rivals, etc.? And, uh, I mean, whatever you say about, like, uh, it does drive me nuts when he laughs, when he screws up a, a chance, but the guy just shakes stuff off. It's kind of his wry, ironic, what-do-you-know-about-life kind of laugh when he screws something up, and he's he's just straight back at it, and he's like, he's just always there. He's always a threat. He's the threat. And, you know, this game, more than any, we leaned into the idea that, we just want to free Aubameyang up so that he can get one-on-one. And I think maybe part of the reason we went with Maitland-Niles was to make sure we were secure enough on that wing that we could totally free up Aubameyang to do whatever the fuck he wants, to be as free as he wants, and maybe also to pull James forward to create the space, to tempt Chelsea into into creating the space to leave Aubameyang 1v1 against whoever they put there. And thank God it was as Piliqueta. Um, I think significant from this game is the partnership we're seeing, seeing develop between Tierney and between Pepe uh, to link to Aubameyang. So we kind of, we can get to him. Uh, we're kind of double dipping on finding ways to get him going. Um, through other players. So th- those two partnerships, that first-time ball from Tierney, I mean, he is really good. The comparisons with him and Robertson and TAA as a fullback, um, I always got that. Like, I, I didn't watch him when he was at Celtic and, you know, you, you YouTube it and stuff. But you could see that uh, if his YouTube um, stuff played out, that's the kind of fullback you've got there. Uh, if he was as good as all the hype, all all the reading uh, you do around him and the kind of game he has, um, he's a Liverpool kind of fullback in terms of what he gives you. He's a playmaker, a creator, um, and that partnership with Aubameyang on that side is huge. And I guess over the last few games, I've gone away from my idea that, that if you're going to have Aubameyang, the thing to do is to play him through the centre. I think the thing to do is to set it up so that he's free from the left to move in mm. uh, to the striker role as much as he wants. And that's the key thing we got to do to set it up so that starting from the left, he's basically <clears throat> pretty free. And whether it's Lacazette next year, I mean, look at look how we use Enkedia. Look how Arteta obviously rubbed his hands at taking this young striker and kind of forming him the way he wanted to form him. He didn't look for an option to Lacazette. He didn't ask him to do something different. He asked him to do exactly what he asked Lacazette to do, that the false nine role dropping into the 10 spot uh, and opening up the middle 
so that uh, Aubameyang can go in behind and Pepe can cut into the centre and ca- cause havoc and and re- uh, reap real trouble there. So mm. um, I, I think the last few games, uh, obviously we had we had a dodgy one in there, but in general the last few day- games have evolved that whole Aubameyang from the left, Lacazette dropping deep in the middle and Pepe becoming... Uh, a fairly awesome part of our attack um, with with options to feed um, Aubameyang from from the two sides or up the middle. So yeah, and uh, I, I thought it was significant for Aubameyang this game beyond beyond just the goals and the legend status. I think this is further evolution, and you can see. Look, I'm not on principle. I'm against the buying Aubameyang. Uh, buying his next contract. On the other hand, I don't see how you don't do it because he's totally integral. He's brilliant. He looks like he can run forever. Um, it's like, how do you not do it if, if if you're Arsenal and Arteta? How would you not take Aubameyang, even if it's one more contract where you think, 31, this, is, this isn't what we should do? Yeah, I mean, look, I have done many of things in my life that felt really good in the moment that you wake up the next morning yeah. <laughs> wondering what you were thinking. Um, yeah. I don't know if I'd go back and do them again, uh, but that's a debate for another time. I, I just think, look, I still feel we don't get Aubameyang enough chances. I mean, if you want to dig into the metrics, his XG per 90, his shots per 90, you know, chances, where, where his chances come from, I still think we can find ways to put Aubameyang into the positions that had him goal a game striker in Germany. Um, you could say the decline could be age-related. It could be the caliber of our squad. It could be all kinds of things. I still think there's a way to position him to get more out of him. That's not the argument for the day. The day is about celebrating him not just winning us the cup, but then smashing it to the ground, destroying it so that no one else can ever win the FA Cup. The FA Cup is now uh, permanently Arsenal's. So that's that's good. Um, you know, I, I think this was a day, too, for me to like sort of rethink where the squad is, and you don't want to get over your ski tips from the FA Cup and think you're better than you are. So I want to be clear about that. And I think you saw some liabilities. I mean, Rob Holding, I think, is a concern. We're not going to harp on negatives today. I think Granite Shaka had a game that makes you realize, you know, or at least for me, makes me realize that these these concerns about his ceiling are are warranted. Um, I certainly think Danny Ceballos has to stick around. You talk about players that became an integral part of what Arteta wants to do, and how can you not resign him? I think Ceballos fits into that category. Yeah. Clive, on the outsides, I mean... Tierney has proven to be a masterstroke signing. We we kick the club sometimes for for the transfers and for you know the agent coziness. And on a day when the Willian rumors are swirling, I understand it, but we should give credit where credit is due. It's not hard to pay seventy two million pounds and get Pepe, but it is hard to find a player of Tierney's caliber at the price we paid and get as much return on that investment as quickly as we have. I think he's been brilliant. Um, I'm going to force you to do something though that I don't think you want mm-hmm. to do because that's more fun for me. I think Hector Bellerin, like the team, started poorly, and and I think it took him a while to come to grips with the game. I think he started to, and I think he grew into it, and I actually felt he had a fantastic game. I think he maybe wasn't as flashy on the right as Tierney was on the left. He's coming back from really a two-year injury, and we look at holding, and we look at where he is in his return, and it's a little frightening, and we look at Bellerin by contrast, and he's starting at moments to hit the heights that we know he can, I thought his carry for the second goal was absolutely crucial. He puts his body on the line. He's know he's going to get smashed, and we get a little lucky with where the ball goes from there. Pepe does the rest to Aubameyang, who who again ends um, ends a life. And I, you know, 
Not that we want to celebrate that, but it was hilarious. Uh, but yeah, I thought I thought Bellerin was was really good in this game, and I, I think considering you know we brought in Cedric maybe because we had concerns about what Hector's future was, and you know Ainsley Maitland now is a player I know you have real affection for, but to me Bellerin is is showing that he can hit a level that makes him an indispensable part of the team. Yeah, so <laughs> on on Tierney first, we spent twenty five million pounds in cash up front. It's not often you do that, right? Could we, you mean as opposed could, to amortizing it over the length of the deal? Or whatever? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Twenty Celtic pushed us to twenty-five mil up front. Sorry, I don't mean amortize. I mean spreading the payments out. Amortize is an yes, accounting trick, different thing. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I know you. I know you meant. And so that's that's a big expense for Arsenal getting that player, a player that has been overused during his Celtic time. He was a superstar kid, and they played him injured many occasions, and they burned him out and sent him down the road with a cash payment. And I was. I was fuming about that because I follow Scottish football quite closely and I was fuming about that and I thought we should maybe wait a while to recover from his injury. We bought him and we didn't risk someone else getting him and we then carried him for a while and the lockdowns obviously helped him get his body in shape and we see the player that we have now and everyone's sitting back ordering their teeny shirts as, as we speak, right? So could we got a guy there hopefully for the next five to ten years, hopefully, right? So on Bellerin... He's already given a big part of his life to Arsenal. And I thought he would play in this game. And the reason why I thought he'd play was just because of his big game personality. And sometimes when you're experienced on these big occasions, you just know what to do. And that run came out of nowhere. Right? I'm no, I'm a huge Maitland-Niles fan, but in the, he's played 100 games for Arsenal now. At this stage in his experience, I'm not sure he would have taken the mantle there and just gone for it. Like, like Bellerin did. The game needed it, and he did it, and it worked out. And that's what I mean by big game personality. Now, I've, I've always sort of felt, actually, when we got Cedric, I wonder if it's to... I couldn't say it because I get criticised for it. I may be still wrong. But I wonder if it was to really let mate, uh, Bellerin go. Right? So that could be something that just happens. He just might want a change, you know? And... Cedric is an okay player. I'm not saying he's a Bellerin replacement, but Bellerin never had a backup, and I felt we burned him out, much like Tierney got burned out by Celtic, and eventually cost him a cruise ship, and whatever happens, we're going to have two right-backs now. We don't have to burn anybody out because we've got the players to cover that gap. In this game, I agree with you, Elliot. I think he ended the game so much better than he started it, but I do think as a personality that's one we will struggle to replace if he did leave. If he stays, I'm really happy because, yes, he's got technical shortcomings, but he's somebody who just gets it. He gets the shirt, he gets the club, he gets the fans, he gets everything. And, yeah, I can pull him apart, but what's the point? He is somebody that's been here for, since he was 16 years of age, and you can't put a price on that. And much as though I like to give the, the academy kids the, the benefit of the doubt, he's the same. Just because he comes from Spain, he's been here as really a scholar, He's worked his way through, and he knows what it means to wear that shirt. And at that, that moment, in that game, he tore them to bits and smashed into them and got us, helped get us the energy to get the second goal, and that's priceless stuff. So whatever happens, he's, he's created a great legacy for himself at the club. If he stays, I'll be happy, even though I critique him. If he goes, no one could question that. He wants to try a different league, for example. So, yeah, mm. I thought he was, he was excellent the weekend. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just look at it and I say... Maitland-Niles 
we, well, we don't know his future. I mean, who knows what his future is? I, I think yeah. I like Maitland-Niles as a utility player we can plug in in these kinds of ways, in a back three, into the midfield. If we need him in, you know, in a midfield three, he'll probably get some chances to do that next season. As a right back, if we need him as a left back, I mean, it, it raises the specter of the Cedric deal and the value of it. But I, I would definitely not want to go from Bellerin to Cedric as our first choice right back at this point. I mean, I, I look at the level that Bellerin is hitting now, and I think there's more to come from him, given that he's coming back from what is really, I think, a two-year type injury. And and it, it would be a shame. But I, I I think, again, for this day in particular, he he started slow, he rose to the challenge, and became a really important part of how we won the game. So full credit to him. And yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I just want to clarify, I'm not saying that we should that we should sell him. You know, I'm just saying to you, I, I actually think the, the Cedric deal does concern me because Maitland Niles could do anything that Cedric can do and more. Right, so why have you bought him? You know, so I, I, I just don't. If I know speak, why I am in trouble. <laughs> I don't know why we bought him. Uh, Mate, no, he's put. He could be the best of all three of them, right? If he's allowed to be at twenty-two. So, why have we bought Cedric? I don't get it. If it's a, if it's a squad filler, then fine. But if it's the first choice, I'm not feeling it, mate. I'm not feeling it. But mm. let's just see in a few weeks' time what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of weird choices like that. I mean, you look at the the goalkeeping situation. Emmy Martinez becomes a hero for the club. All this time he's spent with no role, and now he wins us the cup. He's looked every bit the best keeper around, really. He's been not just good saving shots, but but good with his with the ball at his feet, I think, as well. And it creates another tough situation because we're not in a situation resource-wise where we can afford to have a 20 million, 25 million, 30 million pound asset playing backup keeper, whether it's Leno or it's Emmy. And so the question becomes, do you have to sell one of them? Uh, a weird embarrassment of riches at a position that's been mostly a disaster for us for years. Uh, Paul, you know, one of the things I love about football is schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is, is, is the misery of opposing fans and watching them be miserable, watching Spurs have to go into Europa League qualifiers, love it. Watching Chelsea be miserable at the end of their season, love it. Um, but... You know what I will say? I love watching opposing fans get outraged at refereeing decisions. It is an absolute joy when it happens. The interesting thing about this game is that the sending off is is what Chelsea fans will grab onto as the injustice that um as the injustice that that cost them the cup. Ironically, I think you look at the pattern of play, we were dominant in the first half after going uh, level and just the way we controlled the game, and I felt that our worst period of play at some level was when we went when they went down to ten men. I thought we were a little too timid. We gave them too much of the impetus, and and they I think they had some of their their better periods of play down to ten men. But but how much do you enjoy that injustice being uh, served upon them? I mean, I I don't think it's a second yell. Although what's interesting, they went Zapruder film right, and they're posting all the still shots of it actually being Shaka stepping on Kovacic's foot. But the funny thing is, that's a weird way to present it. Because <laughs> if you go shot by shot and you look at the video again, Kovacic lunges. He's leaning back and he lunges. It just so happens that Shaka is so slow that Kovacic gets there ahead of Shaka. So Shaka kind of winds up standing on his foot a little. But Kovacic has his studs showing and legs straight the way he goes into that challenge. And I can understand how when you're on a yellow and you've been cautioned just a moment before, a referee could see that and say, you can't steam into a challenge like that on a yellow. You're gone. It is a harsh red, which makes it even more hilarious. 
How do you feel about the, the hilarity of them suffering that injustice? And then also the extent to which it actually didn't hurt. I mean, look, you never want to say going down to 10 men helps a team, but I actually feel that we were deserved winners. We were dominating this game, and I don't know that actually we we took advantage of the extra man that well. Yeah, no, I think when you there's no sense you can look back on it and say we weren't the better team from whatever 15, 18, 20 minutes onwards. Um, and, you know, it was, we got it to a point where uh, we had him in trouble. Um, the the other side of, of it for me was, um, you know, we had something like, I think it was 27 tackles. They had 24 tackles. They had 14 fouls. We had two fouls. So fuck it, right? You're out there banging, kicking, uh, been cynical, tactical fouls. Okay, so be it. Um, that's playing the game, bending the rules to maybe what other teams do, but they fucked up. And it, it, like they, they, there was all this uh, uh, anger that there isn't VAR for their second yellow magically coming in. It never seems to save us, but suddenly they want... Uh, VAR for their second yellow, which is never used. Um, but they don't want VAR for their first yellow, which, you know, uh, that could have been a red card. Okay, it's a stretch, but, but uh, you know, the, they're fine with, with no VAR on, on the first yellow, just for their second yellow to get them off the hook. Mm. They were going around <clears throat> banging people, kicking people, doing their shit. We, we played a pretty clean game. Uh, those are the breaks, so fuck it. You want to go around banging people, kicking them, uh, you know, kicking the legs from under Bellerin or Pepe when he's turning you. Okay, fuck it. So suck it up. Um, I'm totally fine with this. Their misery is lovely. The misery of their players afterwards, um, having to watch us get our medals, Giro, you know. I'm I'm okay with the Giro Giro thing. I'm glad he's found a happy home and... He's got his career back on track after we let go of him. But, you know, there's a statute of limitations. One season, one year. I'm glad he found his feet. Fuck him at this point. Uh, he was there to, you, you knew he was going to be dancing around afterwards. So, you know. Well, we saw uh, the video of him on the bus after the Europa League last summer, right? Yeah. So, I mean, screw that yeah. guy. <clears throat> and, I mean, we did owe them did one. Did you see and we the got Pepe video yes. where he's saying? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, why don't you describe it? Because it's, it's great. It's, it's a video it, the it, day before the, the final. Yeah, and they didn't release it before the final, but somebody released it afterwards. And it's just it just shows you that there's niggle among the French lads. I know that they're not all on the French team, blah, blah, blah. But they are the French league guys. Between Lacazette, Pepe, and Aubameyang, there's, there's obviously history with this whole Giroud as uh, France's striker kind of displacing Lacazette. But basically, it's Pepe and a buddy doing a quick video, and he's basically saying... Uh, you know, the FA Cup final, uh, don't talk to me about Chelsea and Giroud. It's going to be Aubameyang and Pepe. But there's just a nice little edge to it. It's like he's had it to the back teeth with bloody Giroud shit. So there's obviously, you know, these players find their motivation from somewhere. And you see that front three afterwards celebrating specifically together as a trio and for the goals and how they work together and how they played together. A uh, nice little edge and niggle there, and the whole there's a whole backstory you don't hear about. But London's a small place of, among those uh, French players and those French league players. 
thought that was pretty sweet. But I just can't let go of the Tottenham Hotspur thing with the Europa League. That that's so they may a thing they may be in fact be playing a qualifier right now. <laughs> yeah. So th- I did this on Sunday. Try doing this. Take the list of of teams they have there and read it out loud. It's one of them is a Christmas carol. I think it's called Santa Coloma or something like that, which I'm pretty sure is like a Portuguese Christmas carol or something like that. Yeah. I, d- I didn't get that far because I had to get past from Ordebasi <laughs> Shimkent. So it's Jessica Nixie. We're, we're, look, we're, FK- we're, we're roaming into the territory of making fun of foreign languages, which I'm not totally comfortable doing. I would never do that. F H Riterii, F H Afnar Yardar, Shakhtar Saligorsk. I mean, we've watched a lot of football. Right? Uh, t- to be fair, Shakhtar Saligorsk heard... is a beautiful place to travel to in mid-August. So that would be fun. I've never heard of even one of those bloody teams. It's absolutely priceless. Well done. Well done, yeah. everybody. Well done. Well done to everybody. Um, so, okay. Um Look, Clive. One of the things, though, that I will say is, you know, they go down to ten men. We we've got the cup final in our the cup in our hands. We just have to see it out. And this is where I have some sympathy for Arteta. And this is where you see, you know, just how hard it is for him to put together a team to to win on the day. I was sitting there thinking, don't make any subs, please, Mikel. Just don't sub anybody. Just leave these guys out there because. You know, you trusted the guys that were out there, and it, it, it's hard to change it and feel good about those changes. Like, with all due respect to some of those players that were on the bench, maybe Saka aside, Eddie to some extent, but again, you're trying to protect, you know, a 2-1 victory. It doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. I mean, it was definitely a day, Clive, to celebrate the performance of the players on the pitch and maybe just realize how threadbare we are in terms of being able to put an 11 out there that can compete. Yeah, we have to remember, we've got a number of injuries as well, and we know... Now we we would have Martinelli to come on in these games, you know. We'd have Pablo Marine defence. I know people are not as convinced by him as maybe I am, but he's a, a you know, I think he's going to be a decent player for us. You know, we didn't have Mustafi in this game. You know, Gwendozi and Ozil. Let's not let's not go there, shall we? So we've lost a lot of depth. You know, a lot of depth, and and this is where we have been relying on a lot of the younger players and. He didn't bring on Willock or Saka in this game, you know, and you could see why. You know, he wanted to tough it out with some older guys to get us through the last few minutes. Louise broke down. So, you know, Chelsea suffered a lot of injuries in this game, and you could say that the balance, the amount of games that we've had, we had a similar amount of games, but Mikel has rotated those players appropriately so they didn't break down during the game. Yet Chelsea have really played their players hard. They've got their prize in the Champions League. They had to play to the last minute of the Premier League season. So they've got their main prize. And it cost them in this game because they were breaking down. Things that you do, Pulisic broke down just after half-time. So what was happening at half-time in that dressing room? These are things that you can you know, help and help fix. But I, I think we, we all know we've got work to do. I don't want to go into too big today because it take away the joy that we're all Yeah, seeing. no, let's just celebrate but, for today, yeah. Yeah, well, we we all know we've got work to do, and and even within the result, we can see we've got work to do. But that's fine, you know. The key was always the most important thing was when the final whistle blew at Saturday. That's the most important thing. This victory has given us all a lift, and it makes that work feel better to do. You know, and it may act as an exclamation point for some people's careers, and it may act and maybe keep some people's careers a little bit longer. And it just gives us a bit of um. Gives a bit of a pillar in the road, really, to really to hold on to, to say, yeah, we can do this. There's a belief pillar just being added. We can do this. 
this is what happens when we do things properly. And, we'll, and we've only just started. But I think when we start to switch, maybe potentially to a three-man midfield, what we're going to do then? What we're going to do when we start Aubameyang running back to the corner flags to protect his fullback because that's where we are right now. Can we protect his 31-year-old legs to make sure they're running forward and not defending? What's he going to do as a free forward for the left-hand side when he's got no defending to do and he can just pick people's pockets? He's going to, he's going to be even better. Right, so can we support him in that? Can we give him a maybe different types in a forward that can actually dribble, turn around, post up, attract people to create more space for Pepe and him? There's things we can do in centre midfield to protect the back four, add more speed, add more creativity, add more dribble out of the press, for example. There's things we could do at centre half with adding sprinters that can cover wide spaces so we, we're not scared when there's not a crowd scene back there. There's work to do. There's work to do, but right now we showed how to manage the squad better than what Chelsea did. And in the end, Chelsea's bench looked quite threadbare because they just probably had one game too many. Mm, yeah, and I mean, we'll take it. So, Paul, I mean, we 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 do wind up seeing it out. I think it was certainly a triumph of Arteta over Lampard. And I mean, not not that I'm biased here, but I thought Arteta got it spot on today, got everything right. I thought this was like a three out of ten from Lampard. I just I don't know what he was thinking. You know, the the home game where we wound up losing to them, uh, thanks to the Leno Howler, unfortunately. Look, <laughs> we we dominated them in the back three. We we just dominated them in that game, and they brought Jor- Jorginho on to go to a back four and a midfield three, and they really took control of the game. And I mean. I, I felt for sure the way we were dominating it in the first half after we went level that, that he had to change it. And he just didn't. He he stayed exposed in the places they were exposed all game. He stuck with what he was trying to do. Even when he lost Pulisic, like he, he just stuck with the plan. I, even when he loses um, uh, Aspilicueta, he sticks with the plan, despite the fact that Christensen looked like he wanted to be anywhere but on that pitch playing in the middle of a, 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 a back three. Like it was just... I thought a disaster class from Lampard. And yes, Clive is typing in the box, Conte wasn't fit. You know what? That is fair, uh, and that is a problem. I still think he, he had to find a way to change it to a, to a four at the back and, and three in midfield and try to get a hold of the game. And, and maybe there wasn't an option for him. Maybe I'm being a little harsh. But I I thought that in terms of, of being outcoached, I thought Arteta definitely got the better of Lampard here. I mean, I, I know I'm right because we won, but do you, do you think that that was pretty much on display. I, I, I think there are a lot of people who would look at where Chelsea finished this season and look at how Arsenal performed under Arteta and just say, well, Lampard's a better coach. But like, I think most of us have some skepticism about Lampard. And the good news, I think, is by finishing top four, by being a Chelsea legend, I think he's going to get more time than most Chelsea coaches get, which is great for us because they are signing a lot of talented players. And I think much like the um, OGS situation at United, the longer they don't move on to a really talented coach, the better. But but do you think Arteta really got the better of him today? Or today on the on the on day of the final? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think Lampard set them up very well at the start, and they had their fun with this for 15, 18 minutes or so. I thought what was interesting was that Arteta didn't really look to change how we were set up and how we were playing. He just wanted us to work the plan better. Um, and that's what he really tightened up around the 20-minute mark, just getting getting people back into shape, the spacing, the executing the plan, the getting the long ball going, which was clearly always the idea. Um, and he stuck to his plan because he's a very clear idea of how to win this game. Um, 
Lampard, you know, he settled into the 3-4-3, especially for bigger games recently from what I've read, what I've understood. So it was kind of expected in that sense. But I think as soon as, uh, you know, lining up as Pilaqueta against Aubameyang um, was always dubious for me. But when he lost him, it, it became doubly uh, concerning that he was cool with the idea that Zuma was the guy to handle Aubameyang. He was obviously going to be okay maybe on pace and bumping up against him, but he was always going to get minced and rinsed by Aubameyang if we got the right out ball. I mean, uh, Aubameyang nearly had him... Uh, when was it? Hang on. 56, 56 no, minutes. No, he's got notes, 50, Clive. 50, notes. Se- 50 seconds <laughs> is kind of a... A uh, a rerun of his second goal, but but the other way around. It's kind of like he has Zoom in front of him. He cuts cuts into the box onto his right foot and kind of gets blocked down. But almost had them on toast then, and that's what sets Zoom up to get so leaden foot footed for uh, expecting Aubameyang to cut in uh, to the inside, and he goes outside. And I just think uh, Lampard's inability to react to where the real threat was, was what caused them. Mm. Um, I think he started out okay, but didn't react to the changes in the game. I mean, it might have had something to do with the Arsenal IT team hacking into Wembley, getting control of the the advertising boards and starting (laughs) advertising Thomas Cook vacation getaways with about 20 minutes to go which seemed to have got into their heads a little bit. I mean, they did kind of tail... There was a point at which they said, this isn't our game. They'd lost too many players. Uh, like, the guys were starting to kind of just start play, playing that 80% instead of 100% and kind of wind it down. So uh, I think even Frank kind of left the building at about 70 minutes. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, no, he didn't make... He didn't react. He didn't... You know, after halftime, he... He could have, should have done something. They were better in the second half, but I still f- felt we had this game exactly where we wanted it. Yeah, and I mean, it, it. look, with the pandemic and just some of the stress that, that we've been through on a societal level and and the layoff of football and the season we went through and having the bad man and getting rid of the bad man and everything, the release at full time for me, Clive, it, this, there hasn't been a lot of joy. You know, there hasn't been a lot of joy. Um, I mean, there was some for me. I had my second child seven months ago, so let me uh, let me amend that comment. But like, this felt so needed, so needed for this club and just for all of us. I mean, how how special was this comparing against other celebratory moments? It's different because you're not with everybody, but in terms of how badly we needed it, this just felt this felt like something we've earned with a lot of suffering. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I was just- I had a quick chat with Andrew offline today about the feelings on this. And there is no way that I wouldn't have been at this game normally. Right? No way I wouldn't have been at maybe the semi-final as well. And so, really, we, we're all absorbing this game, much like you absorb games, Elliot. So we all become a foreign fan. right? So mm-hmm. the, the local fan doesn't exist anymore. So And so what you do, you even in normal times, you connect with people. You, know, you connect with people like yourself, and you make sure you put yourself in a situation with the people like you to watch this big game. In some parts of the world, we can't even do that, right? So, and so the medium of online and podcasts has become, in my opinion, really even more important. And it's more important that 
we recognize these moments and we celebrate these moments because this whole pandemic has made people think about their life balance, their lives, what was important to them previously, what's important now. Some people listening to this podcast are on uh, businesses and financial futures under threat. And so this is a release and we've gone for a really tough year. And as a club and as a as a as a society from a world perspective, we've gone for a really tough 2020. And then we we sort of turn a corner within the Arsenal world. We see something nice. We see and we question it. We challenge it. That that is our right. And then we hope when the semi final draw comes along that we're going to end up in this situation. And then not only do we end up in this situation, but we have two games when we absolutely exceed expectations and we deliver. You know, we take what happened in Baku and we throw it away. We come to the big moments a year later or so, and we execute and. As a fan, all you want to see is progression and you hope the results meet your expectations. And I think we can say we're starting to see progression and the results are exceeding our expectations from the FA Cup perspective, which only makes me more excited for the future. I'm always looking at tomorrow. You know, I just can't wait for it. I just can't wait for it to happen. But the way this has been built, whatever we do, I hope it's been built in a sustainable way. I hope the plan is a sustainable one. I'm not interested in short-term successes. I want us to be around at that top four table for a long time. We've only been out of it for a little while, but maybe we took it all for granted. There are many Champions League games I could have gone to. I chose not to. You know, I just went for the big ones, like the Bayern and the Barcelona and all the rest of it. Yeah, because those you know were what? the fun ones, let me tell you. <laughs> Good choice, mate. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and, and I think the game needs, needs to have a reappraisal of how they appreciate the fans. I think we need to reappraise maybe how we appreciate the club, right? So it goes both ways. Again, priorities, life balances change for many, many people. And in these times, you find out what you really care about. So pre-game, I was trying to say to people in my way that we can't lose. You know, if we lose, it doesn't matter. It's all about the future. But really, I was talking crap. What what I tell you now, because <laughs> when the day came, no, I'll do, I'll do my You're just protecting yourself, it's fair. <laughs> yeah, protecting my emotions. When the day came, I was absolutely all over the place. And this was the most important thing in the world. And so that's good to know that that heartbeat is still bump, pumping. Mm. And it comes, and it, and it, it, it's really nice that it matters that much. You know, you try to protect yourself from what really could have gone wrong. But I'm so pleased today that... Um, yeah, we're all in a really positive mood. And I hope this podcast goes in some way to all those people listening that they align with us. Because I think this is just a wonderful time to be an Arsenal fan. And I have to say, like, I felt like I was going to vomit every second of the day until kickoff. And then most of the time until full time. Cup finals are the worst feeling. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy unless you win it. And so I love what all those Chelsea fans must be feeling and what they must have felt. I really hope they soak up the misery. Like, really drink it in. Couldn't have happened to a nicer group. I, I, it is such a, a weird experience, isn't it, Paul? I mean, I don't know if you experience it the way I do, but I, I mean, I felt like I was going to crap myself and vomit at the same time the whole day. Like, just the nerves, the anxiety, the, you're, you're just on edge. It feels terrible. Like, you don't want that feeling, and yet you want to be there so desperately and so... You know, not winning it is unthinkable in terms of just how miserable and low you can feel. And I realize we went through that just a summer ago. But to to take all that nervous energy and then convert it into the 
raw emotion of celebrating the win and throwing the cup on the ground and smashing it and preventing anybody from ever winning it again. Just also seeing the celebration of the the players. You know, Paul, I don't don't want to dwell on the negative, but like he did ostracize Ganduzi. He did ostracize Ozil. He had to make that choice. If it had gone wrong, he would have been questioned for it. It didn't go wrong. It definitely went right. And I realize that outcome is not the same as process, but with with a decision, with decisions about soft factors, right? About camaraderie and 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 um chemistry and people buying in and getting on the boat and whatever the expression is those are soft factors and so you, the only way you can measure them is by whether they work out and you look at the team yeah. celebrating together and there certainly didn't seem to me to be a sense of of loss at the players who weren't there with them celebrating it like it it was a special day for these players they celebrated it lustily as they had every right to i think arteta not not only got it right tactically with this team but he found a way to take a group of players that maybe was coming apart at the seams and bring them back together. Yeah, he's he absolutely has done. And Especially, can, can I just add one thing, by the way? There was a lot of speculation, Paul. I think he sort of led the charge about the players taking the wage deferment, and I still think that that was... I don't want to debate that here. I, I'm not sure it was the right move. Other clubs didn't wind up doing it. I think the players maybe got taken advantage of a little bit, but like, there were a lot of things that could have gone wrong. He pulled the players together to feel a part of this club and feel connected to one another. And that's what's important. So I just like with all of those factors, he got it right. He got the chemistry and the camaraderie, right? Look, there, there are all sorts of different takes. Here's why I think the money thing, not to relitigate, litigate, was it right or wrong? Here's why I thought it was important, right? Not necessarily right. Important. We suffer together. That has been his mantra. You hear it from the players. You've heard it from him. It's uh, uh, I'll go on a slight little pop psychology th- thing here, but there's actually a reasonable number of Catholics in this team. Uh, Mika, Mikel Arteta, you got uh, Lacazette, Aubameyang. Um, I could go. I I could list off a bunch more. But, I want to be clear that know, I hate where this is going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, but 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 it's not going quite where you think it is, which is part of our psyche is the idea of suffering. Um, and I think what what Arteta's tapped into is, like Pochettino had that whole religious thing going within his team too. You didn't have to believe in the religion, but, the, but you don't have to take his view. But there's something a little bit more transcendent in a view that says it's beyond us, it's beyond our contracts, it's beyond finance. There's something bigger going on here. There's a mission, there's a direction. And you don't have to share. It's not actually important whether you believe what the coach believes. You just have to believe that the coach believes it and you believe in the coach. There's the, He's tapped into something that goes beyond a bunch of guys with football contracts who like to win trophies and it's just about the money. And the big things are all about getting that, that buy-in beyond to do something that maybe isn't fully in your best interest, but is in the overall collective, at least and, and, for that season. And I think, but I think that there's 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 only a couple ways that works, Paul. Two two things. First of all, players have to know that if they do suffer and if they do work, they'll be rewarded. So someone like Maitland Niles, yeah. for example, was rewarded, starting yeah. in the semifinal against City, starting in the final against Chelsea, rewarded for suffering and putting in the work. The other thing is you got to win. I I honestly think what you're talking about, Paul, only works if the players do see results. So like, you know, you can ask them to suffer. You can ask them about, yes, yes. And you know what I'll do? I'll add a little psych 101 here. I took a psych 101 class in college. It's literally my entire understanding of psychology. But 
there's an interesting experiment they did. Basically, like, how do you get someone to like you? How do you get someone to care about you? And I, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna quote this kind of wrong, Ask but it's them interesting. To do you a favor? Yes, yes. If you do someone a favor, that actually makes you feel more connected to them and like them more than if they do you a favor psychologically. So asking the players to give of themselves and do something for you is actually a way to get them to feel more bonded to you and committed to you. I mean, at least that's what the psych study says. Now, again, I think that only works if it pays off, but it has paid off. So, I mean, this is a weird uh, bend we've got, gone around past the hour mark of this podcast as we say, you know, Look, as we big, lose the listeners by the minute. The buy in. Yes. It, it, it's like people paying a price because it's going to feel good in the end. Suffering on the pitch, suffering together, giving up something off the pitch. I mean, look at Lent. Look at the whole religious calendar. It's all about getting people to sacrifice for the for the bit. You know, we're just wired to do this stuff. You don't have to believe in God or not believe in God to recognize he's tapped into something, that whole suffering thing together, to enjoy the suffering, the the putting in, the giving up um, for the bigger collective. And these non-negotiables have to have consequences. It would have been great if everybody buys in. But, you know, he clearly has seen from a couple of players that they... yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you said it would have been great if everybody bought him, but actually the irony is, look, I'm no Jose Mourinho fan, and I think he's gone well past his sell-by date. But when Jose was yeah. in his prime, one of the things he did when he rocked up at a club is he kind of picked on someone and had them be the, you know, there was some player who for yeah. one reason didn't really do exactly what he wanted, and that player got ostracized, and he kind of became the example. And there is something to be said of making an example of the ones who, who buy in, and make an example of the ones who don't, because otherwise yeah. it's it's empty threats, you know? And I thought about that, except Jose would have gone out of his way to find a couple to kind of bully out of the squad. Well, yeah, just our and luck just, that someone uh, made it easy. <laughs> yeah, how about, yeah, how about exactly. that? Exactly. He, w- he would have loved them all to buy in, but there had to be some non-negotiables, and there had to be a line drawn, and there had to be consequences. Mm. On the other hand, he's taken people like Chaka, Sabayas, and in particular Maitland-Niles, who was clearly on the outs in terms of his thinking from whatever happened in the first week or two with them, he kind of said, no, this is not for me, and kind of moved away from him, and then came back and opened the door for him because Maitland-Niles did all the right right things uh, in the end for the right reasons. Yeah. So he, he he's not looking for the Jose excuse to exclude some people, to ostracize them. They just presented themselves, and it's sad, it's a shame. He could have had them all on board, but it never seems to work that way. And that. And that's fine because it worked out in the end. Clive, uh, can you take this train of a podcast and put it back on some kind of track, please? <laughs> yeah, well, Paul, Paul used religion, but actually it's just a culture of leadership. It's a creating that mentality change and that culture change in the club. And the one thing I will say is you want to find out who's on board, but you also want to find out who's not on board. And that needs to be visible and presentable to the rest of the squad, and they know exactly why they're not on board. Because then you can take the train and carry on, and it will stay on board the tracks. So I mean, I'm not afraid. Somewhat dissimilarly to this episode, yes. I'm not afraid of the fact that Ozil and Guendouzi have decided to step off the boat. Because actually, it's a good thing, because we know why. It's clear. And the most important thing is he doesn't waver like Henry did. It's very important he doesn't do that. He holds his line. Everyone knows what's acceptable. Everyone knows what happens now when we when we do the right thing and we win. 
you know, the rewards. So he's had a but, great but end of the year. But to Elliot's point, you got to win too, or you're back you got to win. So that's I where think, Emery I think, fell down. Exactly. I think Emery was doing fine. Mm. He's not. He's not. No, he's well, not come on. You've got to be objective. You've got to be objective. You've got to be objective. He was doing fine on the cards that he was that he he was dealt. Then he started to go wrong, and at that point, he had no depth of personality to hold on to or depth of principle because he'd broken them. He'd broken his own rules. He started to chase the near-term result. Arteta's strong enough to say, you know what, I'm going to take on the Ozil crowd and his 35 million followers. I'm going to take him. I'm, I'm going to answer that press conference discussions. I, I know I've got a bright young thing going to do, but you know what, yeah, he's, he's let me down three times, three strikes, you're done. Right, so, and he's held his line and everyone else has bought on and we are where we are. And this is what I talk about sustainability. He's building something sustainable. To do that, you have to root out the people within the old culture that are got an extraordinary influence on that old culture. Root them out, find them, and then move them on. And then you can build something that's sustainable for yourself going forward. Mm, yeah, well, let's... Let's wrap it up. Um, there's plenty more to do talking about squad building later this week, and there's already transfer rumors flying around as if the season never happened. Just an exceptional way to end a tricky season. I couldn't be happier for, for Arteta, for the players, for all of us who love the club and, and needed a lift. I think being able to end his first part of a season as a, as a as a head coach, I mean, I guess he called a manager. He's certainly more manager than, than Emery was with a trophy, with an important trophy, with an, a moment that is proof of concept. You, know, you talk about that in, in business and sales, you know, oh, we need proof of concept. You need that as a coach too because players look and say, wow, something's happening there. That guy's got something. And uh, I, I think that is hugely valuable for us. I think Tierney, a heroic performances down the stretch. Maitland-Niles becomes a, a hero after looking on the out. It's an incredible story for him. Aubameyang maybe becomes a legend over these two games in the semifinal and final, which you know maybe would not have been possible just based on the lack of success for the club during his era at the club. So love to see that. You know, Pepe maybe trending now towards being a player where we won't constantly bring up his price tag when we talk about him. Certainly I won't. I need to stop doing that. But just just so many great performances, and I, I, I couldn't be happier. Nemi Martinez, who who knows what his future is, but has proven that that all this time he spent in waiting, you know, in the waiting room as a goalkeeper, ha- has paid off, and that, that he, he deserved his shot. He got it, and kudos to him. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as we all did, and, and it's a shame that we don't really have more time to revel in it because the window's open, and the next season will be here before you know it. But um, I think we can laugh at United. Uh, we can laugh at Spurs. We can laugh at Chelsea. We can laugh at City. All of these other clubs, whatever they have going right, they didn't lift the cup. We did. And uh, once again, it is the Arsenal FC Invitational. And I, I am thrilled to say that we have won it 14 times to match the number on the back of the man who won it for us. So uh, for for everybody at our podcast, we, we just want to say thanks for spending the season with us. We'll be ha- having plenty of episodes to cover the silly season as well. So so don't go anywhere. Pause on Twitter. Pause with my pens. Thanks, pause. I just want to say I hope you go after a Buddhist for midfield in the transfer window so he can be one with everyone. Mm. Yeah, I, if there's one thing that I, I felt that this podcast needed more of, it was r- religious analogies and conversations. So thank <laughs> you for adding that. Clive's on Twitter, Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Join us next time as we discuss uh, controversial political opinions, um, you know, and then <laughs> and then things like that. So, uh, yeah, my name's Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter. Gunner gives five-star review, write nasty things about – well, don't write them about Tim because 
special moment in his life. You can write about Scott. I'm fine with that. Or just filled with praise for everybody because we're all feeling good right now. We will have plenty more coming, uh, as I said, this week and in the weeks to follow. So we're not we're not going to take a break. We're not going to go anywhere, even though the name says post-match podcast. Uh, we, we like to think that we have more to offer uh, as it now becomes apparently a religion podcast. So we love you so much. Congratulations to everybody. Congratulations to Arteta and the players and the club. Just a fantastic way to end a tricky season. We are FA Cup champions. We love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Thanks for window news. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.